When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Trump is now dividing and weakening the Republicans, but Biden and the Democrats still have to succeed at changing things enough to win new supporters. And now that impeachment is finished, Biden's Pandemic Recovery Act takes the center of the political stage. For comment on that, and on the longer-term problem of restoring American manufacturing, we turn to Alan Minsky. Of course, that's a name that's familiar to everybody who's been listening to this podcast because he's our producer here in L.A. He's also executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. That's a grassroots organization that works with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And he's written for TheNation.com. Alan Minsky, welcome. Great to be here, John. Well, before we get to the long-term economic picture, I'd like to take up one issue about the short-term, the $15 minimum wage that progressives have been talking about for many years, which has been endorsed by Biden, which has been put into the pandemic relief bill. Just remind us, what is the federal minimum wage right now? Less than half of that. It's $7.25. It's very easy to make a living on $7.25 an hour, <laughs> if you have about 3,000 hours in a week. <laughs> well, I understand that the Congressional Progressive Caucus under its chair, Pramila Jayapal, worked hard to keep the $15 minimum wage in the House bill for pandemic economic relief. That bill is e emerging from committee, still subject to the whole House and then to the Senate. And in the Senate, Bernie Sanders has been working very hard on this bill for many, many years. How important is the $15 minimum wage for the progressive agenda? Oh, it's super important. Uh, as you may have heard, John, we have incredible um, maldistribution of wealth in our society. And this has been further exacerbated over the past year during the pandemic. The statistics that are available show that the top quarter of the population income earners have done pretty well. They've done and probably saved a lot of money, too, during the pandemic. The quarter below that, not so well. The quarter below that, worse. The bottom quarter, catastrophic. Okay. And right now, we have working people unable to make ends meet. We have an epidemic of homelessness. And simply put, people are so underpaid for the labor they do at $7.25 an hour or anything below $15 an hour anywhere in the country, let alone the um, more expensive and you know more economically vibrant large metropolitan areas in the United States of America, like Southern California, where even $15 an hour is, is inadequate. But across the country, you know, you're really talking about just living lifting uh, the minimum wage back up to the level, close to the level it was adjusted for inflation 
throughout much of the post-war period in the United States of America. Since it's been set at 725, it has fallen way below where it used to be in, in uh, inflation-adjusted dollars. It's absolutely impossible to make ends meet on that kind of money, and it's essential. Now, it is also super popular with the public across the country. Um, and so, as always, three cheers for Pramila Jayapal, Great politician, great political organizer, and great work making sure that this was included. So why is it even a question of whether this could be in the bill? Well, there are a few reasons, but one of the main reasons is because um, they want to get the bills passed. And this is maybe a classic example of the Democrats um, negotiating against themselves uh, in advance. But the idea that the minimum wage statute could not get approved by the Senate parliamentarian and thus be available in a package that would be passed through reconciliation. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Um, through regular order, with the threat of the filibuster, right, uh, the, the bill would need 60 votes. But why take it out even before you try to pass it through regular order. Again, this is a problem with the Democrats negotiating against themselves in advance. This was epidemic during the Obama years. But let's say it can only go through the Senate, through the process called reconciliation, by which you don't need 60 votes to clear the filibuster, but on measures related to the federal budget, you only need 50 votes with Kamala Harris then providing the tie-breaking vote, and it would pass. The question is, is the minimum wage a federal budgetary issue? Well, Bernie Sanders, who happens to be the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, <laughs> he weighed in and said, look, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, right, nonpartisan body, did a study and they declared exactly how this would impact the federal budget. So let's make sure we include this into the package because we can get it through reconciliation. So that's one of the main reasons people had said we got to take it out. Pramila Jayapal won the argument at the committee level. It's back in where it should be. Let's get this through right now. However, there's a new problem in the Senate. Kristen Sinema, the recently elected Democratic senator from Arizona, announced she will oppose including the $15 minimum wage in the pandemic relief bill. She says it's not about pandemic relief. That means that in the Senate, the $15 bill would have to go to a regular proposal, which would be subject to a Republican filibuster. And Kristen Sinema also says she opposes abolishing the filibuster. In that, she joins another Democratic senator, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who also opposes abolishing the filibuster and opposes the $15 minimum wage in any case. So right now, it looks like $15 won't survive in the Senate, but progressive groups in Arizona and West Virginia are pushing those two to change their positions. So we'll be following this in the weeks to come. In the meantime, raising the minimum wage remains, as you said, Alan, extremely popular. Two-thirds of the American public supports raising the minimum wage to $15, and that includes more than 40% of Republicans. And it doesn't just poll well. When it's been an initiative on ballots in states and cities, California, Washington pioneered this, Seattle pioneered it in Washington, but many states have now voted on it, most recently Florida. Whenever it's been on a ballot of a city or state, it has won the increase in the minimum wage has won every referendum it's been put before the public with since 1998. 
the public wants this. Absolutely. And you know, John, if you are to receive $15 as a minimum wage and um, you are to work 40 hours a week, uh, 50 weeks a year, how long do you have to work to earn a billion dollars if you have zero taxes <laughs> and zero expenditures? Have you ever done the math on that, John? I think this is a about- 15 15- Fifteen dollars minimum wage. I don't know what's the answer. That thirty-three, roughly thirty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three years. Thirty-three thousand three hundred thirty-three years of working at minimum wage. Six, six times more than six times the length of human history, basically. Now, if it's seven twenty-five an hour, that's above <laughs> sixty-six thousand years. So we're, we're we're really letting people have the capacity to dream here, to, you know, reach their become one of the billionaire class. And and I think the only other thing I would add on the on the fifteen-dollar minimum wage is the number of people who would benefit from this. Apparently, it's it's tens of millions of people don't make fifteen dollars right now. Hey, that's that is for sure. In fact, it would lift. Many people even out of poverty, uh, though it's hard to imagine how you do that at $15 an hour. But in some places, you know, again, with the cost of living is left, I, I saw that at least a million people would be lifted out of poverty just from Whoa. this one measure. And it would help, yes, tens of millions of Americans. Again, this goes to working class communities, working class communities of color and a lot of women and women have especially been hit hard during the pandemic in terms of the impact on the economy. We will be following this closely in the weeks to come, but we also want to look at the big picture, the long-term problem of reviving American manufacturing. This is something that Biden has made part of his economic plan. He announced it back in July, and he's beginning to take the first steps now. His plan involves cracking down on outsourcing investing billions in research and development to develop especially the next generation of green technology. And then he wants to connect those to a massive jobs and infrastructure program. He says his goal is 5 million new jobs in manufacturing. He started just a week or two ago with an executive order that requires the federal government to buy more goods produced in the United States. The federal government, of course, is a huge market buys, spends something like $600 billion annually on contracts. But of course, for many years, that's been open to foreign companies to bid on and lots of foreign companies can undersell American companies. So this should bring back a lot of outsourced manufacturing. Is forcing the federal government to buy American a good place to start on reviving American manufacturing, do you think? It's the the single largest purchaser in the world is the United States federal government. And so it's a great place to start. And um, U.S. manufacturing is down to about 11 percent of GDP. Um, That's as low as countries like Afghanistan at this point. It used to be up at about a quarter of GDP uh, or even higher than that back in the period around and right after World War II. Uh, We all know that there's been a huge exodus of manufacturing and just how uh, much manufacturing anchors a country. First of all, we saw it in terms of the social necessity of it around the supply chains related to the top of the pandemic, where you weren't seeing any of these essential materials be produced within the United States. So it addresses those problems. But if you look at the countries in the global economy that are really stable, 
Uh, let's leave China out of it that because that's not stable only because it's grown so fast due to manufacturing anchoring its uh, its economy. But if you look at a country like Germany, which has maintained its manufacturing base uh, with a very prosperous, stable middle class society with very good social indices, you know, it's it's really sort of old school capitalist theory, John. If you have capital investment in something like manufacturing, while it's true over the past four decades, there have been a lot of people exiting. But if you put the investment into setting up a manufacturing shop, that's a stable source of jobs um, and productivity in communities. People understand that. And the United States of America now has vast parts of the country that have the infrastructural setup to be able to be a part of the supply chain and they're absent the actual manufacturing shops. So this is a very, very promising sign that the Biden administration is highlighting this. Donald Trump really did bring the question of failed American manufacturing more foregrounded into the American political consciousness than recent politicians. And it's important that the Democratic Party and Joe Biden not only now maintain that sense of it being a priority, but actually do something unlike Trump. And I think that's this is a really good start from Joe Biden. What's your assessment of emphasizing um, infrastructure repair and expansion as a generator of jobs and of stable manufacturing jobs, not just temporary construction jobs? Okay. Well, okay. First of all, the American energy grid needs to be completely reconfigured into renewable and sustainable energy. This is a massive society-wide industrial project. Um, now, what achieves that is, of course, an expansion of certain forms of energy production, uh, and they require new parts. The parts that got made, probably 85, 75% of them, they're not going to be distinct factories. They're going to be the widgets that are made in, you know, basically high-tech um, construction, right? So who's going to produce those parts? Who are going to produce the parts for the supply chain? This can be the expansion of pre-existing manufacturing industries in the United States. And of course, also the establishment of new shops. And then a good portion of it is new technology, which will have to be newly developed at new shops. Now think about it in terms of the power of the American economy and how significant it is if this country leads the way in the manufacturing of the renewable and sustainable energy systems and all of the component parts that go into it rel relative to other countries in the world. This will be something that can anchor prosperity through a revitalized manufacturing base with good paying jobs. And by the way, these are high tech jobs. These are not your grandparents' manufacturing jobs. You know, these, this involves often state-of-the-art AI and robotics in terms of the, just the running of the manufacturing. Um, there also are very dynamic aspects of design that go into the component parts for these incredible machines that we're talking about to build renewable energy systems. This means there really should be a whole new wave of vocational training at maybe at the community college level, at the high school level too. Again, these are not boring jobs. And by the way, there are all sorts of great uh, strategies to make these workplaces really anchored by uh, either entrepreneurs, and I'll get to something even more exciting for the left in a moment, who are very committed to the communities where the shops are being. We, we know the history. We know the history of the offshoring. Well, now we have an opportunity to really work with entrepreneurs who are committed to high wage jobs. We can, we can really encourage as the left that these be unionized jobs. Um, and then there's also the prospect of, and then, you know, we understand you got to raise the money to get something going, but there's the possibility of worker, worker ownership 
And there's also the possibility of worker ownership in shops where the old old ownership is wanting to move off or sell, and as opposed to selling and offshoring, that the workers can get involved in buying up the businesses and running them as worker cooperatives or worker collectives. This is an idea that is increasingly popular, and there are ways that this can be incentivized too through public policy. PDA is, has a partnership with an organization called Manufacturing Renaissance out of Chicago that is absolutely experienced with the real world effort to save existing manufacturing businesses in Chicago, which there are still thousands in greater Chicago area. A lot of them, again, are looking for new ownership and you can have worker ownership. You can have ownership from uh, entrepreneurs from communities of color because the ownership is still overwhelmingly white. Um, and so there's all sorts of ways that this can, this can grow in progressive ways that can really help communities around the country. And Chicago is one place like that. There are places all across the Rust Belt. And also there is the issue of the oil and gas industry workers and their need for a just transition out of jobs that should go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, so like a, a doubled uh, fossil fuel metaphor there, but it should go the way of the dinosaur. And, and these people need jobs they're being told that the environmental movement is promising a just transition. Well, renewal of manufacturing targeted into the communities that are losing gas and oil jobs is a really important strategy uh, that labor unions can get behind, workers can get behind, communities can get behind. And I do think this is all something that the Biden administration is grasping. And I finally, I need to ask about the calendar, the time that all this is going to take in relation to the political calendar. Of course, we're already thinking about the midterm elections. Midterm elections, almost every time the party in power uh, loses seats in Congress. It's certainly possible, probably likely, that Democrats will lose this control of the Senate, and they even could lose control of the House where they don't have a very big margin. What would make a difference is big progress on jobs, on financial aid, and on, dare I say, progress towards restoring manufacturing. Do you think this can happen fast enough to affect the 2022 midterms? Well, it could. And first of all, the 2022 midterms in the Senate actually don't line up that poorly for the Democrats. You have open seats in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and now Ohio. Of course, one of the great champions of all of this is Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio. With him taking the lead, that could really put the wind in the sails of the Democratic nominee to replace the, in the election to replace Rob Portman, outgoing Republican senator from Ohio. In the House, of course, you're absolutely right. We have to show that there are policies from the Democratic Party that really boost the, the, pot, the, the prospects for working class Americans. Here's the thing. The next big moment for this is the infrastructure plan. That is the Recovery Act. You're going to see a combination National Infrastructure and Recovery Act that probably will be dropped and introduced to the world, dropped on and introduced to the world hours after the Relief Act that we spoke about in the first half of this interview passes through Congress. So the Biden administration is undoubtedly already working on uh, what will be in the Infrastructure and Broad Pandemic Recovery Act. The two are going to be combined. So right away, we're talking about green infrastructure. We're talking about reviving American manufacturing. And it speaks direct. If we can achieve on this front, yes, it will do wonders for the midterm. Alan Minsky, he's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Alan, great to have you on the show. Always great to be with you, John. 
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.